This morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 35, as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel in the 24th chapter. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 32, we read, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In short order, Jesus is going to offer three illustrations for his disciples. He begins with the parable of the fig tree, a lesson for the final generation. He then encourages his disciples to watch and wait and then he gives a second illustration from the time of Noah. Later in the chapter, a third illustration will feature a thief in the night. How are we to interpret these illustrations? What are we to make of it? Remember, the rules surrounding the art and science of biblical interpretation require that we, in context, think about it in relationship to the second coming of Jesus Christ because that's exactly the question that was asked in verse 3 as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Remember, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? And what we don't get from Jesus is a rebuke or a condemnation where he says, Stop asking so many questions and you don't need to know and forget all that end times nonsense. He doesn't actually say that. He talks about the events that will unfold and clearly this parable illustrates, if anything else, the certainty of his coming. The other illustrations plainly state the timing must remain secret. So in large view, we understand something. The coming of Jesus is certain. The coming of Jesus is secret. How can you tell if you're a member of this final generation? The signs and signals begin in your lifetime, continue in your lifetime, in frequency, and intensity. And so, again, we begin in verse 32, the parable of the fig tree. Look what Jesus says. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. Once again, Jesus invites his disciples to learn a lesson from the fig tree. Now, in the 1960s and later, Hal Lindsey popularized the notion that the nation Israel was the fig tree. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 22, we studied the incident earlier. You'll remember when Jesus cursed the fig tree. That was Monday of the Passion Week. 
Jesus left Bethany in Matthew 21, 18. In the morning, he made his way to the city of Jerusalem. He found a fig tree by the road with only leaves and no fruit. And you'll recall Jesus said, let no fruit ever grow on you ever again. And immediately the tree withered away in verse 19. Normally, the fruit and the leaves appear at the same time. While the curse of the fig victory is illustrative of Israel and illustrative of the expectation that trees should grow when Jesus said, let no fruit grow on you ever again. There's no Bible teacher that I know who embraces the notion that what Jesus was saying is that Jews or Judaism would never, ever, ever, ever be able to offer anything ever, ever again. We know that one day Israel will yield fruit to the living God. So in this case, I think Jesus invites us to learn a lesson from the fig tree. That is, he invites us to allow the fig tree... To be our teacher. He's saying take a lesson and learn it from the fig tree. Now remember what a parable is. When we were studying the parables over and over again I reminded you. That a parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. An earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. And you'll remember that parables have the power to conceal the truth or to reveal the truth. The fact that Jesus says to them, learn this parable from the fig tree seems to indicate that he isn't interested in concealing the truth from his disciples, but rather revealing the truth to his disciples. Earlier in Matthew's gospel in chapter 13, verse 10 and 11, we read, quote, the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given and then in verse 13, it says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Then Jesus went on to give the meaning of the parable of the sower. Luke's gospel confirms that what we're reading is a parable. In Luke's gospel, we learn that this lesson can be learned from the fig tree or any tree bearing fruit for that matter. That's what it says in Luke's gospel. In Luke 21, 29, we read, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. In Luke's gospel, he says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. Here, the focus is on the fig tree. The Mount of Olives where they were standing would have contained groves of olives, but also of figs. Sometimes these fig trees would grow 20 to 30 feet in the air. 
And you'll remember at Passover, the budding begins. Fig trees lose their leaves in winter. Now this is important. Fig trees lose their leaves in winter when most trees retain their leaves. So so again, while most trees retain their leaves, the fig loses the leaves. Then Jesus chooses the fig tree and offers the fig tree for a specific illustration. The fig tree is a late bloomer. It doesn't bud early in the season. It buds late in the season. It becomes a perfect example of what seems like fruit delayed. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Because remember, Jesus wants fruit from the nation. He wants fruit from the religious leaders. He wants fruit from his disciples. He wants fruit from us. But fruit delayed is not fruit denied. It's the perfect example of what I would call a late bloomer. The dry, brittle branches then become infused with sap. The leaves appearing are the signs that fruit is on its way and that summer is near. So inherent in this illustration is a concept. And the concept is patient waiting. Remember what it says in verse 3. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the end of the age? I need you to wait. I need you to be patient in your waiting. Well, I don't want to wait anymore. I want Jesus to come back. Let me ask you a question. Have you grown impatient? Are your prayers to hurry the end times along? When you see the earthquake in Mexico, when you see the flooding in Houston, when you see the hurricanes in Florida, do you go, yeah, go get them, Lord, judge them? Or do you cry out for protection and grace and mercy, remembering that this is the age of grace and mercy and that Grace precedes judgment. Do you cry out to the Lord and say, one more day of grace. My my father isn't saved. My mother isn't saved. My children aren't saved. My family and friends don't know you. They don't love you. They don't serve you. Are you in a personal or, or theological rush to judgment? Yes, judge them, Lord. I suspect that part of this illustration is be patient. Be patient. Jesus is coming. In the very opening when he says now learn translates a very important Greek word. It's manthano. It means to learn in such a way that you genuinely understand the truth and you can make the appropriate applications in your life. It doesn't just mean a superficial understanding of the facts. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This lesson is not meant to conceal the truth, but to reveal the truth. And the word was often used to describe the basic learning that would take place in that ancient culture when you had to lay the foundation for learning. Do you remember when you were a kid and you learned 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Go ahead. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Q, R, S, and T, U, V. See, that was supposed to serve you for the rest of your life. You were, be, you were supposed to be able to remember that. Let me ask you quickly. Three times four. You remember. You remember your times tables. You remember the alphabet. This is the basics of the basics of the basics. And so the word was often used to describe basic learning principles. Paul uses this same expression when he writes in Philippians 4.11, in all circumstances I have learned, same word, to be content. Paul learned how to be content and we're still obviously some of us learning the lesson, aren't we? Because we haven't always, in all circumstances, learned to be content. So what is the lesson? When the branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. Jesus is making an unmistakable observe, observation concerning the fig tree. Sap flows into the budding leaves. The budding trees mean spring is in the air. And as sure as spring is in the air, summer follows spring the figs will ripen. The figs will drop. The tree will yield its fruit in due time. Jesus, again, has been answering the question posed in verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the end of the age? If the fig tree represents the nation of Israel and its destruction and then its subsequent reconstitution, the parable would have been utterly lost on the original hearer. If the purpose of the parable is to reveal the truth to them rather than conceal the truth from them, then the straightforward reading makes the most sense. If the tree is in the season of the sap and the budding fruit, the next season is summer. With spring comes summer. With fruit comes the time for the harvest of the fruit. And remember, part of the whole point of the chapter has been God is going to judge at exactly the appropriate time. Look at verse 33. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. The New King James translates us at the doors. It could also be translated at the gates. It could also be translated right at the threshold. The Lord says, so you also, when you see all these things. Who is he speaking to? In the immediate context, he's speaking to the, to the disciples. But I'm going to suggest to you that now he begins to speak to all disciples in every age, in every generation, as you come towards this 
thing marked the end. He says, so you also, when you see all these things, the idea being that they can in fact be seen, know that it is near. And remember what we keep talking about in each and every section. What are these things? These things are all of the things that we've looked at from verses 4 through 28. In brief, remember, deception by false teachers in verse 4 and 5. Destruction by wars in verses 6 and 7. Devastations by disasters in verses 7 and 8. Deliverance to persecutions by loved ones or betrayal in verse 9. Defection from the truth by make-believers in verses 10 and 11 and 13. Then the declaration of the gospel to the entire world in verse 14. In 1995, Campus Crusade for Christ and a number of other organizations embarked on this strategy to try and reach the whole world with the gospel by the year 2000. Now it is the year 2017. Has the entire planet been reached with the gospel? Not yet. Are there people who have never heard of Jesus, never been told they're a sinner, never been told that, they're, that they need a savior? And I'm going to suggest to you that all of the indication seems to be that whenever this thing is fulfilled, it's going to be fulfilled literally, I think, during the time of the tribulation. In the book of Revelation, it speaks of angels circling the globe, giving the gospel. The gospel's been, been entrusted with human beings. We're the ones who are entrusted with the gospel. But the prophecy must come true. Make no mistake about it. There will come a time when it is true. Then there's Daniel's abomination, which makes desolate, which we studied in verse 15, a demonic attempt to wipe out the Jewish people in verses 16 through 20, determined judgments by God on the enemies of God from verses 21 through 28. And remember, we saw D-Day or Judgment Day, the literal return of the Lord Jesus birth pains in verses 4 through 14, the abomination which makes desolate in verse 15, the need to run for your lives in verses 16 through 28, the tearing of the fabric of the universe in verse 29. All of those things are supposed to indicate to you the time is near, the time is near. The time is drawing near. Things are near. So what's the lesson of the fig tree? The signs signal the certainty of the judgment, the coming of Christ. Jesus says, when you see most of these things, some of these things, all of these things, are there more wars in our future? Probably. Are there more atmospheric phenomenon in our future? Almost certainly. When Jesus says all of these things, I'm going to suggest to you he means all of those things that we've talked about, including 
Daniel's abomination, which makes desolate in verse 15. Demonic attempts to wipe out the Jewish people. The judgments that seem to unfold right before our eyes. And then the picture is one of an entourage that makes its way. The picture is, again, like you're visually seeing an entourage from heaven. And it makes its way to the gates of the city. It's necessary to cross the threshold of the gates to enter the city. Luke's gospel says in Luke 21, 31, the kingdom of God is near, which is consistent with what we read in verse 33. Know that it is near. This is the heart and soul and answer to the disciples' question at the beginning of the chapter. Jesus says, he will come back and establish his kingdom. When will he do it? After the deception, the destruction, the devastation, the deliverance, the defection, the declaration of the gospel, Daniel's abomination, the demonic hordes, the events will continue. They'll continue in intensity and frequency. And then there will be an appearance of a false Christ and a false religious leader who will make a deal and a covenant to keep Israel safe. There will be a rebuilding of a future temple. In the last 30 years, people have asked me in every decade, do you think Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist? No. <laughs> do you think that George Bush is the Antichrist? No. Do you think that Bill Clinton is the Antichrist? <laughs> no. Do you think that Barack Obama is the Antichrist? And I said, if he is, I'm really disappointed. Because I expected so much more from the Antichrist. I expected that he would be a political and a military genius. So when people point to you and say, do you think so-and-so will be the Antichrist? Guess what? The Antichrist is going to have to fulfill all of the qualifications that the Bible gives concerning this Antichrist figure. What's wonderful for you and I as Christians is we are never, ever invited to look for the Antichrist. We're invited to look for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And so we see that the second coming of Jesus is near, that it is certain. In verse 34, look what Jesus says. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. I've repeatedly told you that in John's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, whenever Jesus uses the expression assuredly, it's sometimes translated verily, verily, or for sure, for sure. So we can't skip that word assuredly, I say to you. It means that this is the truth. This is a promise, but I'm even going to go one step further. It's more than a promise. If we, can, if we can find a word that strengthens the word promise, I'm going to suggest to you that this is an oath, that he's swearing. It isn't something where he'll go, it may come true, it may not come true. It absolutely must come true. 
Scholars are deeply divided over the expression of this generation. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. The skeptic, the critic, the unbeliever believes the meaning of this generation. The, the Greek word is genea. It's a word that could mean progeny, offspring, generation, people group, for, or it can mean the generation, or that it applies to the disciples in, in the first century and the people alive when Jesus spoke these words. So, so for those people who blindly and lamely appeal to the destruction of the temple as proof of this particular passage, the problem with that position is all these things did not take place. And what makes matters worse, the very next sentence, Jesus declares, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The critic, the skeptic, and the unbeliever said, there it is. Jesus was wrong. He said that generation would see it. They didn't. He's a false prophet. If these scholars and critics and skeptics are correct, then Jesus is a false prophet. He claims to know the truth when in fact he doesn't know the truth. It falls flat on its face. It is a failed prophecy. And they plainly say he got it wrong. And so if he got this wrong, could he also get it wrong about being the resurrection and the life? Is, could he get it wrong that if you believe in him, you can have eternal life? But there is another explanation. The Greek word translated genea, or generation, can mean race or family, which might mean that the existence of the Jewish people or the family called the Jewish people, that they will survive. And that has come to pass radically, unbelievably, miraculously true in spite of attempted desires on the part of people to wipe out the Jewish people. It never took Place, Or more likely, the simple explanation is that Jesus speaks of this generation as the generation that is alive at the time when the events begin to unfold, beginning in verse 4 through 28, that again, in other words, the events leading up to the coming of Jesus will be brief. They will be short. They will be intense. The signs preceding the coming of Christ will be sudden, intense, abbreviated. Remember what we already learned. Unless those days were shortened in verse 22. No flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened, verse 22. Again, the obvious answer is Jesus is speaking to a final generation who will see these things happen. F.W. Grant writes, quote, the very generation that sees the beginning of these things will see the end. William MacDonald suggests the same people who see the rise of Israel as a nation or who see the beginning of the tribulation will see the Lord Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven to reign. Others suggest that this generation is a reference to the stubborn, 
recalcitrant generation that refuses to see Jesus as the Messiah. That is, national Israel continues in its Christ-rejecting condition until the coming of Christ. Will the Jewish people exist as a people when the Messiah returns? The Bible's answer is yes. But I think Grant gets it exactly right. The events that begin, the events that unfold, the events that conclude will all take place in the course of a single generation. Clearly, since the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, we've seen deception by false teachers. We've seen destruction by wars. We've seen disasters in the earth. We've seen persecutions by the saints. John writes that antichrists have gone out into the world. They're there now, he writes. On the horizon is a future leader yet to be revealed. Misguided teachers may claim that they know the identity of this future man of sin, I've had people come here to this church, approach me in this pulpit and say, I know who the Antichrist is. And I say, then just keep it to yourself. It's been my experience that everyone who said that it was Henry Kissinger Everyone who said that it was this person or that person has been wrong. This particular person said it was Prince Charles. I go, Prince Charles? No wonder Diana divorced him. If you were married to the Antichrist, wouldn't you go, I think we're done. It's crazy what people will come up with. Is there a future false leader, false religious leader and antichrist? Yes. Has his identity been revealed? I don't think so. Jesus predicts the future. Look at the beginning of verse 35. He says, heaven and earth will pass away. The dissolution of the physical and temporary universe is described in detail in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. It's mentioned again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Why in the world is Jesus apparently delaying his coming? Peter argues that the Lord isn't slack or tardy at exactly the right time he's going to fulfill his word. The Lord wants sinners to come to Christ, to be saved from the coming wrath, from the future judgment. Peter writes, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burnt up, it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He calls it the day of the Lord. Remember, we've already discovered what that word means. The day of the Lord is also another name for the day of his coming, the day of judgment, the day of the tribulation. The time of the great judgment which will come upon the whole earth. It's called the great tribulation. When the world says peace, safety, the judgment falls. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves know perfectly 
Paul writes, that that day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape, he writes. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that that day should overtake you as a thief. Peter argues, you are the sons of light and the sons of the day. We are not of the night. We are not of the darkness, it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Here, darkness is a state of mental, emotional, but also moral and spiritual separation from God. You're not separated from God. Or are you? Because if you are separated from God, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to discern these things. Paul, Peter, write, you're not separated from God. You've been reconciled to God in Christ. You should understand these things. You should know these things. Will God's people be caught unprepared when Christ comes to take them to heaven. Clearly the world, the world will be surprised by the catastrophic judgments that are to come upon them. But you're not supposed to be frightened. You're not supposed to live in fear. Jesus says, the universe won't last forever. One day the sun will collapse. One day the earth will be consumed by fire. God will create a new heaven and a new earth, but everything you see, everything you can touch, everything that you can taste, everything that you can experience, the material universe will fall away, will fail, our bodies will fail, the planet will dry up, the sea will disappear. But the Lord says that his word won't fail. In Luke 16, 17, we read, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. In John's gospel, it says in John 10, 35, if he called them Elohim, God's to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Psalm 19:9 The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The contrast becomes whatever's been touched by sin, what's ever been contaminated by sin, what's ever been infected by sin will eventually be destroyed. Whatever has been cleansed by God, what's ever been forgiven by Jesus, what's ever been in Used with grace and mercy and forgiveness will be retained. Amen is right. And so there's the permanent proclamation. Look what it says in verse 5 or 35 at the end of the verse. But my words will by no means pass away. The Lord contrasts the impermanence of nature and the universe with the permanent nature of his words. 
The predictions of Jesus according to Jesus cannot, they cannot, they cannot fail. Well, what about the scholars who suggest that Jesus was, was right about both things, but, well, guess what? He was wrong in chapter 24. My advice to you, say to them, I can't wait till you have this conversation with Jesus. I can't wait for you on the day of judgment to say, hey, Jesus, I just thought you got it wrong in verse 24. I thought this was hyperbole. You were exaggerating a point in order to make a point. That all of this talk of judgment couldn't possibly be true. In the strongest possible terms, Jesus maintains the absolute certainty that everything that he has said has to come to pass. In effect, Jesus swears in verse 34 that a final generation will see, read it for yourself, all these things take place. Verse 34, the universe is temporal. The words of Jesus, eternal. Do you remember how the chapter began? The disciples were commenting on the majesty, magnificence of the temple proper and its buildings like the pyramids of Egypt or the Parthenon in Athens or the temple of Diana in Ephesus. These all seemed impervious to earthquake and weather and erosion. The pyramids are still with us. The Parthenon continues to stand, but an earthquake leveled the temple of Diana. It disappeared from modern view. The skeptic, the critic, the unbeliever are hoping, they're hoping that given enough time and the corrosive elements of human reason and the supremacy of science, that the words of Jesus will fade away away. They'll disappear. They'll be replaced with a new narrative. The story of humanity won't end according to these skeptics and critics and unbelievers. The prophecies of, of the Bible will not come true. The story of humanity will unfold according to what Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden. You'll be like God's. You know what the real problem is? You don't recognize your own divinity. You don't understand your own authority. You don't understand that you're in the evolutionary process of becoming an eternal, supreme being who creates their own reality. They're holding out hope that Satan's rebellion and man's rebellion will succeed. And God's word will fail to materialize. The skeptic and the critic and the unbeliever are placing their faith in what they believe is the fact that the Bible can't possibly be true. I'm placing my trust and my faith and my confidence that what Jesus says exactly will be true. That he'll keep his word. I read this week 
that Scythians drink blood in order to bind an oath. Certain tribes in India swear on a tiger's tooth. Malay tribesmen swear by their swords. Dakota Indians swear by the sun. Lovers swear by the moon. Homeric Greeks swore by the hearth. Norsemen swore by a ring. South Slavs swear by their children. Northeast Africans swear, quote, if I don't speak the truth, may my wife be kidnapped and taken away. This is what they say in case they run into marital difficulties. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what... It's their way of saying, I swear on my wife's life. Christians swear on the Bible, even when they're not supposed to. They're simply supposed to say yes or no. But I remember a song that Don Francisco used to sing a long time ago. The life that I have given you, no one can take away. I've sealed it with my spirit, blood, and word. The everlasting Father has made his covenant with you. And he's stronger than the world you've seen and heard. In the Life Application Commentary on Matthew... It says this on this passage, quote, History is the story of change, the rise and fall of empires, the coming and going of societies, which for a time happened upon some happiness and then floundered upon some folly. What survives all change? Not temples, not governments, and not even Christian saints who get sick and die like everyone else. Only God's word endures. On that alone, we stake everything. God's promises endure forever. And all who belong to Jesus share in them. Take hope. Jesus alone leads through change to a bright and buoyant future. Full of everything good, unquote. Yes, yes. I like that. Only God's word endures. I read an illustration about the permanence of the Bible. Century follows century. There it stands. Empires rise and fall and are forgotten. There it stands. Dynasty succeeds dynasty. There it stands. Kings are crowned and uncrowned. There it stands. Despised and torn to pieces. There it stands. Storms of hate swirl around it. There it stands. Atheists rail against it. There it stands. Profane, prayerless pranksters caricature it. There it stands. The flames are kindled about. There it stands, Jesus says. My word. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. So what can we safely say about the coming of Jesus? Remember what I've already told you. There are 318 references to the second coming in 216 chapters. It's one of the great themes of the Old Testament prophets and New Testament writers. Jesus repeatedly promises, I'm coming back. John 14, 3, Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Mark 13, Luke 21. The angels testify it's going to happen. The apostles prophesy it's going to happen. And the church calls it not a mystery of the future, but the blessed hope 
It's far better to practice the things that are revealed than to speculate or argue about what has not been revealed. And what has the chapter revealed to us? There are deceivers, so don't be taken in in verse 4. He invites us to become familiar with these signs. He invites us to study the book of Daniel and understand what it means. And then he invites us to learn the parable of the fig tree. He also assures us of the certainty of his coming. And later we're going to learn the secrecy of his coming. We're also invited later to watch, to pray, and be ready. We're not quite done with the chapter. You ready for the rest? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to know the things that aren't revealed. But Lord, if we would just patiently consider and accept and embrace the things that are revealed, how different would our lives be? Would we commit to holiness and not just simply happiness? Would we commit that whatever else our life means, it means that we're invited to live in the joyous expectation that our Lord and Savior could come at any moment. That we can, with complete confidence, understand that the disasters the devastations, the difficulties that are faced have been predicted and that we as men and women of God are to lend our prayers and our hope and our supplication and the gifts and the callings that have been placed in our life to provide some remediation, some help, all the while understanding that God has set aside a time when all of the things that he's talked about must come to pass. Believers must be rewarded. Deceivers must be judged. And so, Lord, again, we pray that we would not be content with just the simple information that we've been given, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we consider carefully and prayerfully that everything that Jesus said must of necessity come to pass. And so, Lord, again, we want to, if nothing else, turn from our sins Turn to the Savior. Be honest about our current spiritual condition and then desperately desire for things to be different in our heart, in our life, in our ministry, in our present, 
and in our future. Lord, we pray that holiness, purity, and your presence and your promises would put us in exactly the place where we need to be. And so again, I pray for that person who needs to turn from his or her sin, turn to the Savior, confess their need for a Savior, cry out to Jesus, walk with him into the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.